This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to episode 31 of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, speaking to you from Brooklyn, New York. Our guest today is Matthew Petty, a foreign affairs journalist and 2022-2023 Fulbright grantee currently studying in Amman, Jordan, on a Center for Arabic Study Abroad Fellowship. Before the fellowship, he was a researcher at the Quincy Institute and a reporter at the National Interest. Matthew's work has also appeared in The Intercept and Reason magazine. I was introduced to Matthew when I asked a publisher friend, Amy Marshall Lambrecht, who is also a friend of World Beyond War, to help me find young anti-war journalists I could follow. I began following Matthew on Twitter and was intrigued to see that his posts about geopolitics and Arabic culture showed a wide range of interests, as if he were not merely trying to use Twitter to banter about the news of the day, but also to capture deeper truths about the world he lives in and the planet we all live on. His tweets sometimes seem to be aiming to say more than people usually try to say in a tweet. So I decided to interview this up-and-coming participant in the future geopolitics of our planet here on this podcast and find out what else you might want to say. So with that introduction, hello, Matthew Petty. Hey, Mark, thanks for that wonderful introduction. I'm, I'm flattered, honestly, at uh, everything you had to say. So glad, I'm glad my uh, social media is reaching people. Well, it is. And, you know, I, I like it that I would say at least half of your um, your posts are not really about geopolitics at all. But, you know, you s- sometimes are posting about food or I would say cultural aspects of life. And, yeah, you know, it is fascinating to me. You are, I believe, American born, but you are in Amman, Jordan. That's right. Right. Yep. Tell me how that happened. I mean, I understand you're a Fulbright scholar. Beyond that, how did that happen and what is it like? How did you come to be where you are? I've been interested in the world in general, I would say. I mean, I don't want to puff myself up as some kind of super cosmopolitan, but that's always been my favorite thing to learn about cultures. Um, I've, uh, I learned Spanish a while back and then I wanted a bigger challenge, which is Arabic. And it's brought me on this very crazy journey through <laughs> journalism mm-hmm. about the Middle East. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in Amman now, uh, basically to study Arabic. This is the I mean, sadly, like Syria and Yemen used to be much better locations for studying Arabic, but neither of them is <laughs> really uh, feasible at the moment. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm loving life in another city. I mean, I was born and raised in New Jersey. I'm always a New Jerseyan and I mm-hmm. like miss it. But uh, I also like really enjoy experiencing another culture. And, and uh, I mean, to be honest, like as a... My favorite kind of journalism is stuff that doesn't just, you know, I think there's definitely a real value in like wire journalism, like AP and Reuters does. I'd be happy to do that kind of stuff. But I think the best kind um, really broadens your world. Like I was always, when I was younger, I always used to watch documentaries. You know, as a teenager, I loved Vice. Like mm-hmm. this, just because, and I mean, you know, there's always some problematic the more you think about it, the more problematic stuff you find in like kind of gonzo journalism or travel journalism. But the spirit of it, of like, I am going to like, I want other people to be able to experience the world through my eyes. To feel it. Yeah. Like, I think that's a very valuable instinct. And and that's something I hope to always, uh, whether it's a journalist or something else, you know, I always want to help people do that. 
Well, you know, I'm I'm intrigued that you mentioned the word gonzo journalism. So, you know, to to my generation, um, gonzo journalism makes me think of Hunter S. Thompson. Is he an influence of yours? Surprisingly, no. I when I say I mean when I say gonzo journalism, I mean Vice and like hmm. there's a lot. I'm like friends with some Vice reporters. They're very interesting people and and. Like this is the kind of stuff that my my generation's experienced with it. I don't even know if we use the word gonzo journalism. Now it's just journalism. That's well, just how it's, I mean, I you know, I, I like the I like the echo. Hunter S. Thompson um very aggressively covered Richard Nixon's presidency, you know, from the opposition side and the Vietnam War. Um and he you know, he was a hero. He's he's dead now, but certainly a hero journalist to me. Um and you know, I'm also intrigued that that you, with your wide range of interests, uh, chose journalism as your as your field. Is that right? You are a you are going to be doing this for a long time. Is that right? Inshallah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well said. Um, you know, I, I have so much to talk to you about, Matthew. We can cover all the different topics that we probably. Um, are both aware of, but before I, I'm just curious, what is it like to be starting a career in journalism? You know, and again, I don't mean to minimize the work you've already done. You've been published in many places. You're already a journalist, but to be, to be facing a future at a time when to me, you know, a few decades older than you, um, seems to me like things are kind of crashing around me in the world. I mean, this is not 2021 is not, has not been a normal year. And when I when I think of what it must be like to be a younger journalist, you know, what if younger journalists think this is normal? <laughs> That's kind of what scares me. Um, so, can you answer that? Well, let's see. I have a journalist friend. Uh, I don't want to drag his name or publication into it, but sure. I talked to him uh, once, and he's just like, "You're this young, and you're already this cynical." Hmm. But <laughs> to me, it's not cynicism. I mean, we've just seen like. I don't know. I, I mean, honestly, I think a theme that runs through my coverage and kind of a frame of reference that I'm in and, you know, a frame of reference for all the reading I've been doing to try to grasp the world better. I mean, we're in a period of imperial decline. Like mm. the U.S. was the sole, I mean, empire, I, it's not a dirty word. Like they exist. This is, there are empires in the world. And for a while, the U.S. was the sole one that, could really pack a punch right. and now it's kind of contracting and it's contracting. It's not contracting in a very graceful way. It's contracting in a very kind of haphazard uh, kind of unplanned and chaotic way and, and leaving a lot of destruction. And like, yeah, it, it does lead to a little bit of a dismal worldview, um, unfortunately, but uh yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I wish I could. I could. I wish I could end on a better note. But I think one of the things in my reporting that I hope adds value to the world is is helping Americans see that things are not as peachy as they'd like them to think, and maybe and not necessarily sustainable either. And we need to really be thinking about ways like decline empire and decline are both dirty words but we need to start thinking about ways to like prepare for the world that's coming instead of having it sprung on us by surprise hell and yeah hell yeah <laughs> in a surprising way that causes a lot of destruction well um 
I certainly relate to you saying that um, here in America, people think things are peachy. And you're, you are correct that things are not peachy. Um, and yeah, I, I absolutely agree. You know, I'm interested in your emphasis of the, on the word empire. Now, you are being in Amman, Jordan, you are in what was 100 years ago, the Ottoman Empire. And I wonder if the Ottoman Empire liked to call itself an empire. And I don't think the U.S. empire likes to call itself an empire. But, um, you know, it, d- tell me, does how, how does the world, and, and I should say I unfortunately don't get to do much traveling. I spend my time here in New York City. Um, how does the world... The world's in New York. You don't have to travel. I mean, honestly, <laughs> traveling around the world, one of the things that's made me appreciate is just how big of a world New York City is. Really? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't feel that's true. I, honestly, by joining World Beyond War, I became much, much more aware of the world than I ever have riding the New York City subways. And I love New York as much as anyone, but I'm interested in the world. And I'm worried that New York, New York is stuck in the view that everything is peachy. You know, here <laughs> we got Wall Street over here. I mean, obviously with COVID, things aren't peachy, but... Um, capitalism and imperialism and the military industrial complex are all working very, very well for the wealthy people of New York City. So, you know, everything is everything feels sort of sheltered here. And I feel like you must be closer to to the real world where you are. I mean, you're you're in the center of a whole lot of serious conflict. Yeah. I mean, I guess my my original thought was, you know, how does the world view U.S. empire? And how does the world view empire? Is empire U.S. empire? Are there other empires besides U.S. empire? Oof, big question. It sure uh, <laughs> Let's see. Uh, hmm. You know, I had a Marxist roommate for a while, and we used to – it's funny because he would say that uh, – he would say that the U.S. and China are like imperialist states because of this – because of the way Lenin describes how imperialism works. Uh, I'm – not super well read in Lenin, but it's something to do with the way they export capital and try to open new markets. And then he argued that Iran and Russia are not empires. They're they're forces, they're states that pack a punch, but they don't do imperialism. I mean, I would actually argue the contrary, that the US is an empire, that Russia and Iran are empires, and that China has not really, because I'm not looking at, you know, he's looking at economically, I'm looking at geopolitically. China doesn't swing its uh it's it's getting there it's learning to but it doesn't swing its weight around like these states do mm-hmm. I mean, yeah i mean i think like i said the u.s was the sole empire for a while uh you know after the arabs i mean iran always projected power since before 79 there's if you read um Tabatabai, she's now um, in the state department doing arms control work but she wrote a really good book about uh, Iranian defense policy, and she made an argument that the Islamic, this whole like Iranian proxy stuff and exporting the revolution is not a post seventy nine thing. Even the Shah was was doing this stuff, but I mean, it really started to project power after the Arab Spring and well, after the Iraq War and then the Arab Spring. Uh, I mean, Russia too. I think the Soviet Union inherited the Russian Empire without really contracting, mm-hmm. and I think. It's shrunken, but it still swings around its weight um, in a lot of similar ways. So, yeah, there are empires in the world other than the U.S., and I think it's underrated how much the French still do. Um, mm. But 
I think what's changing now is that the U.S. was like the the framework, like the U.S. was the framework in which these other empires existed. It really could call the shots in, I mean, wasn't omnipotent, but it could, it could really be the decisive factor in pretty much anywhere in the world. And then what's happening now is that on the kind of frontiers of this empire, I think the Middle East is kind of the most recent mm-hmm. and most unstable of these frontiers. You have other parties, uh, other powers starting to really poke at the underbelly and, and, and kind of swat away American, like the America's probing into the Middle East. It's a frontier and you have other powers actually able to kind of poke it back and, and, do this. So I think that's the change. How what people in the world see it? I mean, uh, I think some people in the world, people on the receiving end definitely see it as an empire and the people on the receiving mm-hmm. end don't like it. But I think what people underestimate, people don't really, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of people of the generation above mine and the generation above that grew up in the time of like, you know, anti-colonialism and the anti-imperial wars when society is pretty much wholesale rejected the empires that had dominated them and, you know, I mean, pretty unanimously kicked them out. But I think every empire in history has always had a local constituency. Sometimes a constituency are, are, is brought from somewhere else, like they have settlers or something. But I think a, more often than not, there are locals who want this power structure to be there because it's it's not like alien invaders who just wiped everything out and started from scratch. It's like it an empire is a power structure that co-ops local power structures, mm-hmm. you know, right. absorbs it itself. And, and so, yeah. And when that happens, the local power structure is gone because the empire has absorbed it. So the empire is the only power structure in town. I mean, well, no, 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 no. I'm arguing the opposite. I'm saying okay. the empire co-ops the power structure. So ah, oh, I see. people living there, they don't, you ah, know, to them, it's not like foreigners are, you know, they maybe recognize that foreigners call the shots ultimately. But to them, you know, it's just like, this is my, uh, you know, this is the emirate or something or the chief. Yeah. In other words, you know, somebody living in a small country that has a symbiotic relationship with U.S. empire, a hypothetical country in any, you know, continent might might feel that they are very much um, devoted to their local culture. But but what they're actually doing is is what their government is doing, what their economy is doing is supporting, uh, uh, I don't know what to call it, but, you know, an empire, I guess, that has a trajectory of its own that might not be harmonious with what the people in this smaller society believe their, their society is doing. In a way, it gets back to your statement that things are not peachy. Here in New York City, we are a society that is humming along very nicely. Um, and and everybody I see every day is typically doing pretty well. And yet we are part of, you know, a collapsing superstructure. Um, yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm sort of trying to rephrase what I think you're saying about local versus um, versus versus the larger structure. Yeah, and I think there's a, like, when I say that, to be more specific on when I say that empires have constituencies, like, you know, a lot of the complaints I hear about America here is that, you know, it's dominant, it's too domineering, it's too, you know, 
you know, what you'd expect. But a lot of the, you know, some of the complaints I hear are also is America doesn't do, I mean, they don't think of it necessarily this way, but that America doesn't do enough. You know, I've met mm. someone who said like America handed Iraq and Syria over to the Iranians. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like there are people on the receiving end of these other empires who would, who liked the old, the, I think reasonably so liked the old way things were run, or at least would like the U S to have, you know, stopped these other empires from rising. And I mean, people don't always, people don't articulate it that way. Sometimes it comes out as conspiracy theories, like the Americans and the Iranians, like, you know, work together to, well, that was true to some extent in the early 2000s. But uh, yeah, I mean, so I think, yeah, there are, there are people who, you know, dislike America very strongly for the typical reasons. There are people who, um, who, actually would like America to have done more to protect like the local power structures and, and, you know, the human lives that were lost in this kind of imperial decline. And then there are people who they just want an American visa, (laughs) you know, they see that they know they they don't necessarily articulate this as empire, but they want, and this is what I was getting at when I say New York is the world in it. And New York is an imperial capital. It's a big Mm. concentration of money and power from around the world. And people want to go there because there's opportunities there and they don't are, they don't think of it as like, this is an imperial capital. They think of it as like the Americans who come here have lots of money. I want to go to where they are mm-hmm. so that I can get that kind of money. It's a, it's a bracing truth. What you say that on the ground in the middle East, there will be many who see us empire as making moves that might impact their own political wishes positively or negatively. You know, when you say that, some say that, you know, United States conspired with Iran to um, to destabilize Iraq. It makes me realize how, how far away I am from the reality. Because again, I'm here in New York City. I see the world through the internet on my MacBook um, and my phone. And, you know, it seems to me you're talking to cultural differences on the ground that I don't see at all. To me, I I guess I would naively this this would be sort of a cartoonish exaggeration of what a peace activist in New York City might think, but I would <laughs> think that the entire Middle East would be outraged by U.S.'s you know coercion, bullying, um, deal making, deal breaking, you know the 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 irresponsible moves of the United States in the last few years, and yet what you're pointing out to me is that to those who have an interest in in the actual effects of of the US moves they they might be positive or negative towards it. Oh, I mean there are still a lot of people who really again like even when people are are you know dismayed at the effects of US empire and decline they still are like like this conspiratorial attitude is because people are still like pissed at the U.S. itself, even mm. when they see negative effects of of, of American uh, decline. I mean, they're inclined to like look at the negative uh, the negative effects of you know U.S. imperial rise. I mean, the invasion of Iraq was like a horrible traumatic event mm. in the Middle East. I think, I think like yeah, not a lot of people like that at all. I, very few. I mean. Look, Jordan, Jordan's kind of uh, geopolitical function 
And this is, you know, what Jordanian elites and Jordanian people, you know, know and want is that it's an island of stability. It's, it's, mm. you know, it's one of the more stable governments. Um, for whatever problem, you know, something I hear often is like, for whatever problems we have, nobody's dropping bombs on us. Right. Uh, and like, as a result, it, it's also become a magnet for refugees from all these different wars, Iraqis, Syrians, Yemenis. I did not know that. Yeah, I mean... Uh, there's a lot, a lot of uh, refugees from these various kind of, uh, from these, you know, various conflicts around the Middle East here. And I think a lot of them were directly caused by U.S. intervention. And I mean, look, there's like Saddam Hussein nostalgia. And like, it's like, I think it's, Hmm. I personally like taken aback by it. I think it's gross, but I understand why it's like, this was... (laughs) the the us came and wrecked this country and um a lot of people see like well then you know it's pre-2003 nostalgia the phrase saddam hussein nostalgia is certainly one that i haven't heard before would you say and this you know i really i'd like to drill down into this is this based on um sunni and shiite identity that he was a hero of, you know, one one branch of the religion, or is it more about Ba'ath and socialism um, versus imperialism? Like, what are they nostalgic for if they're nostalgic for Saddam Hussein? Is it his militarism, his religion, you know, so-called religion, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's more like Arab nationalism. It's like here was an Arab, here is an Arab leader who you know scared the crap out of the West and scared the crap out of Israel. Right. He was a big strongman figure, and you know this is before the American. He was the one in charge before the Americans mucked everything up. And I think the nostalgia. Some of it comes from there's a big Iraqi diaspora who fled in 2003. You know, a lot of them were had fled because they owed their positions to the previous regime or they were afraid of you know, reprisals after like the Shia majority came to power. Um, And then there's also just, you know, a lot of Palestinians in Jordan who like Saddam because he scared the crap out of the West and Israel. And then I think there's a general kind of Arab nationalist sense of like, yeah, Saddam, like I said, was a strong man. And like he was hit, he was there before the Americans mucked everything up. Got it. I am curious to what extent, you know, we here in the United States hear about Sunni and Shiite. To what extent is that at the core of politics, of geopolitics between Iran and and Iraq and Jordan? And, you know, to what extent does that play a role? That is a, uh, so Jordan is, I think, overwhelmingly majority Sunni. Um, People here, I, I mean, I've met people who said that they just don't like Shia. But I think moreover, or mostly people are kind of just ignorant. Like they don't really know how Shia differ from Sunnis. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there was a period in which that was a huge conflict because, I mean, since the 79 revolution, basically, uh, Iran mobilized its supporters. You know, Iran tried to do a pan-Islamic thing, but it had its most success among other Shia communities because that's where it had the kind of pre-existing connections and cultural competence and such. Uh, and then the reaction to that, like the Saudi reaction to that mobilized people along Sunni lines because that was the most 
effective way to kind of uh, prevent the Iranians from having a pan-Islamic appeal. And then that that stuff got cranked up to like 12 during the Iraq war, because in, in Iraq, that was the uh, that was the cleavage along which society fell. I think, you know, I think the younger generation is tired of that. Like there is right. <laughs> people are not interested in in like if I meet young Iraqis, I would never ask them, like, are you Sunni or Shia? That I feel like that would just. Yeah, like it's it's um, it's something people are conscious of, and it was for a while the central conflict, and I think in a lot of places it is still the mobilizing, the mobilizing uh, force. But I also think it's it's not two thousand three anymore. Right, right. People have gotten a lot more tired of that. It, it's not like some you know people talk about the ancient irresolvable conflict, but it's always you know it's always been a, a group identity that existed, but in terms of how salient it is to people's lives and salient to like mobilizing political violence, that's, that's a different story. Gotcha. When you mentioned refugees, are these refugees from Gaza and the West Bank? Are they refugees from Syria? Where are these refugees from? And what can you tell me about the crises that are bringing them, are causing them to become refugees? So the largest chunk of, uh, actually, I think like the, Maybe about half the Jordanian population are Palestinians, uh, either, you know, so they're either exiled in the civil war that led to the creation of Israel in 1948. Okay. Or, you know, because Jordan used to, like, control the West Bank. Right. And uh, there's a lot of West Bankers who came here during the period of Jordanian control and then were kind of cut off from that side of the, of the, of the, from the, that side of the Jordan River, and um, and the, during the peace process in the '90s, a lot of them basically uh, they got Jordanian citizenship, and they're you know can't go back to the West Bank. Um, okay. They don't identify. There are people who live in refugee camps, like there are there are Palestinian camps. I mean, they're not mm-hmm. really camps; anymore. they're they're neighborhoods. But and there are registered UNHCR refugees. But there's the bigger chunk is just people who have you know gotten Jordanian citizenship and settled down. But there's they're Palestinian origin and they, yeah, if you ask them where their grandparents are from, they'll tell you. Right. Second biggest chunk kind of people who came from somewhere else are Syrians. Mm-hmm. Um, there's millions and millions of Syrians now. I mean, hmm. like that was a vicious war. I think most of them are fleeing the, the regime and just after that, just like the general violence. Um, there are there are Syrian camps, like there's Zatari, which is basically a city now um, on the Jordanian-Syrian border. But there's a lot of people living in cities. They're not, you know, they have refugee status. Um, a lot of Iraqis, I think the Jordanians took in a lot of Iraqis after the 2003 war. Mm-hmm. Uh, Iraqis still come, but the Jordanian government is a lot less keen to take them. They don't really want to open the door to uh, a large wave of Iraqi immigration. Um, I wrote an article a while back, I can send it to you about actually like Assyrian Christians from northern Iraq who. Hmm. came to Jordan like after the ISIS war or during the ISIS war and uh, like they're they can't really get their they I mean they have nowhere else to go but they can't really get their legal status regularized here and rather than send it if you could just um, what would we look for in the headline for listeners who want to look that up uh, uh, there's for American magazine there's uh, donor fatigue among the threats to Iraqi Christian refugees in Jordan great okay. And then there's a second one I wrote for Reason Magazine uh, called Meet the Iraqi Christians Trapped in Immigration Limbo. 
Ah, okay. So this is sort of an interest area of yours. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. For a while, I had uh, last time I came to Jordan, I was did like a month long study abroad program in 2018, and I uh, spent a lot of time. Yeah, I spent a lot of time uh, with the like, kind of in the Catholic uh, the Catholic Relief Center, and I did a couple articles on this. So what um, what impact does this have on day to day life? in Amman um, to be in a country that has refugees coming from at least three different directions that you've just said, you know, north, northwest, I guess, southwest and, and east. Um, all and there's also, uh, also a big Yemeni community here. I, was, I don't know if they come as refugees. Why, I don't know if they, why yeah. wouldn't they be refugees from Yemen? I, like, I just don't know whether they're coming as immigrants or refugees, like what their legal status is. But, you know, since the war, a lot of ones I talked to have come, like, you know, since the war and the famine and stuff started. Um, so, so refugees coming in from four different crisis areas. I mean, how does a, how does a society, how does a city like Amman, um, you know, cope with this? And how does it affect... It strains. It strains the society. I mean, it, it's there's like a lot of uh, there's a lot like the economy is not great. There's not a lot of work opportunities, and like you know, I, I don't think it can really. I don't think like the economy of Jordan can really sustain this many people for forever. And the other effect is that I mean, it brings in a lot of NGO money, which is good. Mm, okay. It's good. Um, but it also the effect of the NGO money. I mean, a lot, a lot of people here work in refugees or the NGO sector or the humanitarian sector. It's a society that's under a lot of strain from all the people that have come in. Uh, population's massively increased in a very short amount of time. You know, the economy is is kind of sluggish, and you know, a lot of people are already struggling to. I mean, people. I don't think Jordanians are starving, but a lot of people are struggling to like get some stability in their life and make ends meet. And I mean, you know, this massive influx, the, the international community has, you know, has put some money in to help. And, you mm-hmm. know, there's a lot of NGOs active here um, and there's a lot of, you know, work in the NGO sector, but it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's definitely not been the greatest boon for a country that is, already kind of resource poor. And right. I mean, look, in Amman, the water doesn't, because of how big the population has gotten over the past century, like the water doesn't run like continuously. Like you have a water tank in your mm. building that fills up once a week. And if you run out of water, you're like, you're out of luck. I mean. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. We, it's, we it's hear about water. the politics of water as it relates to Palestine. But I don't. I don't think of it in terms of other countries other than Palestine. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a something I don't want to delve too deep into, but there is a bit of a um, political debate here about as part of the Abraham Accords, the Emiratis are going to build a giant solar facility and then basically trade that for desalinating water in Israel and pumping it into Jordan, and it's caused a bit of a a bit of a political stir among Jordanians about um, whether this, you know, how far this goes to support the Abram Accords. But like, honestly, like, I don't want to weigh in on this debate either way, but 
like I see why like Jordan needs Jordan needs water, and sure. it's yes, people need I mean, water. A large, yeah, and a large reason for that is because so many people were pushed out of you know Israel Palestine into a, a place that you know can't really doesn't is not very resource rich, right. I want to just point to all the different areas we've been talking about. So you've got Gaza and the West Bank, you've got, mm-hmm. you know, Syria, you've got Yemen, you've got the, you know, still the, the results of the uh, Iraqi, the U.S. invasion of Iraq nearly, I guess it was 18 years ago, but still obviously impactful. Then you've got um, the political conditions in Iran affected by the United States pulling out of of the very important and critical Iran deal of 2015, you are sort of geographically right in the center of all of these ongoing disasters or crises. Which do you, which do you think about the most? Which do the people you interact with think about the most? And which, which of these worry you the most? Oh, that's a hard question. I mean, <laughs> I think it's hard to kind of extricate them from each other. Um, the one I worry about the most, uh, I think, is the possibility of a U.S.-Iran conflict. Mm-hmm. Because that would be, like, there is no real floor to where that goes. And, like, yes. Iran, Iran is not only... Iran is a big country that can pack a punch, I think, more than any opponent the U.S. has faced in a long time. Um, but not only that, and and it could like really make the global economy scream. Uh, but not only that, but like Iranian supporters, proxies, uh, affiliates to various degrees are embedded in a lot of these other conflicts. So if if you cut the head off the hydra, all the tentacles are going to be flailing around mm-hmm. wildly. I mean, this can just cause cascading crises. Yes, yes. Um, people here think about. I think people here think about making ends meet. Um, mm. I think. Israeli-Palestinian issues, you know, given that a lot of people from there are still very live. Uh, yeah, I think people here just don't really want, like, to rock the boat or see more instability. But, And I think, like, both the Western powers and the regional powers have all kind of lost interest in making more instability. Like, I think after the – there was the ISIS war, which really spooked the hell out of a lot of regional – I mean, everyone. Mm-hmm and people in the region. Uh, but then there is the maximum pressure campaign against Iran. Like a lot of regional powers cheered it on. And I think a lot of people who had been wronged by like Iran and its empire also were kind of happy about it. But that also kind of, it hit a point where it maxed out. And there was, if the U.S. wanted to, people, I mean, the U.S. and its regional clients were expecting the Iranian regime to like, surrender or fall that didn't happen and i think there's a realization that like if they push that harder it was they could but like it would be a very painful process and so um i think everybody's lost an interest in like causing more instability but the problem is like it's closing the door out of the after the horse is already out of the barn like these societies are both the ones that have actually experienced civil war and the ones that even the ones that have not have been put under severe strain and are not in a great position to like deal with like the demographic and climate changes that are ahead. Right. Um, 
And we haven't so, even talked about climate. It's a, you know, we're 45 minutes into our discussion and the, the word climate is appearing for the first time. Um, anything, anything more about that before I go on with my next question? You know, is, is climate change affecting situations as well? I think the place we're going to see climate change hit the hardest and the most is water. Like, I think, as I mentioned, Jordan is pretty water poor. Jordan is an extreme example, but a lot of the other places are vulnerable to changes in water. I mean, Syria is undergoing, you know, it's this kind of academically debated whether whether water crisis was the cause of the Syrian civil war, like how much of a contributing factor, but it like definitely has and continue and continues to ravage like the Syrian breadbasket. Um, Iraq is having some water problems now and now Iran is. And like, you know, some of this is due to, I'm not an expert. I don't want to like, I'm not an expert in environmental science. Of course. Um, Understood. I don't know. You know, so a lot of this is, you know, I've seen people smarter than me say that a lot of this is due to, you know, government mismanagement of water, you know, poor development strategies, but, you know, whatever all that, well, like climate change is going to exacerbate all of this. And I mean, we've seen like, we've seen both riot, peaceful protests and like violent unrest in Iran over water. We've seen it in Iraq. Like I said, probably a contributing factor to Syrian civil war. And like, Climate change is going to turn that up to like 11. So, well, yep. Well, okay. Um, tell me, Matthew, what does the word anti war mean to you? I may say something a little controversial. I think it's, uh, okay. it's not really a, it's, it's kind of a dead tradition. I mean, it's a tradition that started in the Vietnam War, you know, specifically opposing American intervention in Vietnam. I think what you're getting at is the anti war tradition in the United States. Yes. There were, you know, for instance, the writer George Bernard Shaw, who was huge 120 years ago, was devoutly anti-war. The writer H.G. Wells was anti-war as well. So the intellectual tradition of anti-war goes back centuries. Yes, yes. Samuel Moyne wrote a great book uh, called Humane, which is kind of comparing the anti-war. It's kind of putting in tension like the humanitarian war tradition and the anti-war tradition. It's kind of peeling them apart and saying these are you know, two separate things that have fought for separate goals. But uh, uh, I rec- I'm, I won't speak for him. I recommend reading the book. But what, what's yeah, the name of that author? Humane. Uh, Humane I, by Samuel Moyne. Samuel Moyne. Okay, great. And I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, okay. Came out about uh, six months ago. But uh, yeah, so the anti-war tradition, you know, as an intellectual tradition goes back very far, but the popular anti-war tradition in the U.S. is something that goes back to Vietnam when we had conscription for a very unpopular war. And so there was like mass mobilization, stop it. And there was a kind of renaissance of that tradition. Um, I mean, it's a kind of renaissance of it opposing the Central American kind of proxy wars in the 80s and then a real renaissance of it with the war on terror. But it failed. I mean, it, it failed and the U.S. government has gotten very good at uh, avoiding um, kind of shielding Americans from the costs of war. And so avoiding responsibility, is that the there is there is an element of that, but they think there's an element of just like not it's just like people don't have to think about it. Like and, right. and people are not there is an attempt to kind of, uh, you know, there is a renaissance in, in maybe I prefer the term restraint. I think restraint is now 
coming back uh, as a thing, but this is still like an elite intellectual movement. And I think we're going to, unfortunately, either anti-war, the anti-war movement will be irrelevant because American elites will kind of wise up and avoid, uh, will avoid getting into another stupid conflict, or we will actually start to feel real costs when we run up against China, Russia, Iran, and that will lead to some backlash. I will, though, just kind of caveat what I said. Even though this, as of like mobilization, it's not a big thing anymore, there is a lot of anti-war sentiment. Like, I think there's just a lot of disgruntlement and cynicism and a sense of like, what are we even doing? Mm -hmm. And, but the problem is that it's so cynical that it's not even, doesn't really translate into any kind of anti-war mobilization. It's just like, our leaders suck. They waste money on this stuff and that's a condition of the world. Uh, yeah, I mean, part part of what I'm how I'm reacting when I hear you say this is, d- d- are you really describing um, that our imagination, the the human imagination, has been so bruised and battered by centuries of brutal, horrible war that we're no longer able to even dream of a world without war? You know, is is that it, it's sort of that's how I'm reacting, like. While I think you're absolutely right that um, anti-war activism, the type that I'm engaging in by interviewing you on this podcast, is is far removed from the realities of war. There's no bombs here in Brooklyn, and you know there's no bombs where no one's you getting are. Drafted. Yeah, no one's no one no one's getting drafted to fight. Nobody. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's. I think it's. Uh, well, I think it's like a cynicism. I don't think it's a cynicism that comes from being traumatized or from, you know, watching. I mean, part of it is like, you know, Americans were sold on the Iraq war as this very like beautiful. It was like this liberatory, like national crusade. And then it just kind of first it was like, we're not there for the reasons we said we were. And then we're fighting these enemies that we don't fully understand, let alone like the average. I mean, like speaking from the perspective of the elites, like we tell you that we're going into Iraq for WMDs and freedom. And then suddenly we're fighting these like insurgent groups with very long names that nobody really under, nobody in America really understands. And then there's these like ethnic sectarian conflict that, okay, suddenly. Wasn't the dream. I mean, I, I, of course we, we all vividly remember the, the lead up to 2003, the U S invasion the dream was that um, the Iraqis would would fall to their knees in gratitude for the United States and say, we are now, you know, we're going to fashion ourselves as the 51st state, you know, culturally. Yeah. I don't mean I don't mean politically, but culturally that they I think that um, as I remember it, the build up to the Iraq war was a lot was sold on the basis of catharsis for 9-11, you know, American getting getting their revenge on the wrong perpetrator, but getting their revenge, and that the Iraqi people would be so grateful to us for invading that, um, you know, that we would, we would then, it would be the end of history, you know, that it, that's how I remember it all. So it was a, a, a vast delusion that turned out to be, psychotically wrong you know and and i think famously you know earlier i was asking about sunni and shia famously there was a a quote i'm not sure if it was from a bob woodward book or something where george bush said wait you know nobody told me about this sunni shia split and we were like yeah okay maybe somebody 
should have told you before you invaded. Um, but I mean, to me, it was a vast illusion. And, and even though, even though I am far removed from it, I'm worried if the outrage doesn't lead to a desire to, you know, solve the problem of war. Is there any middle ground between being intellectually removed, you know, as, as I guess I could be said to be as a podcaster in Brooklyn, far from any war, you know, how can I, how can people like me help? And I'm asking you because you are, you have bravely put yourself closer to, you know, to where these problems occur. And I'm wondering if you have any insights into what the anti-war movement can do to make itself more directly relevant so that we're not (laughs) removed from it. Man, Amman is uh, safer than New York. They call it the capital of boredom. <laughs> gotcha. Precisely because, precisely because it's surrounded by so many, um, you know, conflict zones like the Jordanian government and the, uh, and it's like you know the U.S. and the other Western allies who back Jordan, like very make sure that there that these problems don't come here. Um, so it's not very brave of me, but uh, yeah. In terms of, I don't know. I mean. Like I was saying, like the I think the cynicism comes from having the like from having these kind of end of history delusions shattered very hard, but like not really paying a price for it. And then the US ends up, you know, we're fighting this sectarian conflict that nobody had heard about before, and then we're leaving Iraq and then we're coming back because it's just like new and worse enemy has arose and we're also bombing Yemen and Syria. Where's that? I don't know. I mean, yeah. I think the most effective. I think the most effective things have really been, first of all, the the cost argument financially. Like, I mean, I, it's, people in my generation are very, very like. I rem- one of the most effective things that you, or one of the things you really hear from people is like, you know the government can't do this for us, but they can spend however bazillion dollars bombing Syria. I mean, I think that's like, that's a big part of, are you, yeah. Are you saying this is a potent political message that could be effective? You know, are you, are yes. you, but I have to say, you know, as somebody who watches the United States Congress closely, it's been effective rhetorically, but, it, but we just passed the biggest um, defense bill ever, even though, you know, supposedly we exited the war in Afghanistan. So it's not, it's not effective politically, though it is effective rhetorically. Yeah. I think I'm going to say something very cynical. I think foreign policy, because we don't have a draft, and I'm not saying this to weigh in on whether we should have a draft, but I think this is just like one of the consequences that you observe from it. Um, Because we have a draft, the United States, and because we're an empire, and because imperial management is a very complicated thing, foreign policy is a an elite game. Mm. And I think a lot of the change, and like Americans, again, like if you if your full time job is following foreign policy, you'll learn a lot about foreign policy. But if your full time job is not that, like, what occasion do you have to even be aware of a lot right. of these things? Right, right. I'm not saying people are stupid or ignorant. I'm just saying like it's this the United States is a giant machine. Right. So I think a lot of this has to change on the level if if it is going to be and you know I'm not an activist. I'm a journalist. I like gotcha. I'm not <laughs> I writing about these things. I'm not and you know I come from a set of values. I think it's clear I'm sympathetic, but 
yeah, it, it has to change. You have to have a media that's more willing to hold the government to account. And I think that's coming back. I think that like we've seen actually a lot since the withdrawal from Afghanistan and, and since the Trump era, we've seen a lot more like critical coverage of the cost of war. You need to have politicians who are willing to make it a live issue. I think what people think about as political issues is determined in large part about you know what's being debated. And I think, you know, you have to have academics and think tanks who are willing to actually explore, you know, alternative ideas. It seems to me that the field of journalism is complicit in a lot of the problems we're having. If you're not an activist, but a journalist, you still have to answer for your profession. (laughs) Um, What it seems to me, and I'd like to know if you agree with, you know, that at least in the last five years here in the United States, since the advent of Trumpism, that journalism has been quite a hollow greedy and and corrupt you know corporate practice uh, i'm not saying anything new here or original i'm talking about both sidesism you know the idea that for instance when the united states attacks iran by by killing a a member of the uh, i'm talking about um suleimani to most Americans, the impact of an, an action like that was not described at all. And it was just like, oh, another news day. You know, here's, here's the news of the day. You know, United States attacks Iran. United States appoints Juan Guaido as the new dem- as the new leader of Venezuela, even though the people of Venezuela didn't vote for Juan Guaido. You know, United States does this um, and that. And it's, it's just reported with a very blasé sort of, um, you know, oh. Okay, another news day, you know, here we are encircling China, encircling Russia, moving closer to war, moving closer to war with Iran. Um, And just there's, to me, nothing more cynical than the journalism that I consume on a daily basis. So even like activism to me is a profession that has to answer um, these questions and journalism as well. So how how do you feel as a as an up and coming journalist? And I don't know if you agree with what I'm saying or not, but what do you think of the state of geopolitical journalism? Oh, yeah, I think the, I agree with you. I think the American press has really uh, has really abdicated its responsibility yes. Good <laughs> in terms of But I think it's coming back. I mean, I think... You do? So one big Where? part of it... Where? <laughs> Where have you seen the New York Times? I mean, these are like small things, but did you see the New York Times came out with like a series of very hard-hitting articles yes. about U.S. airstrikes to the point where, and like the, the military, unfortunately, didn't hold anyone accountable for, I mean, okay. Can you just, just make clear what you're talking about, actually, for, for people who don't know, because I know what you're talking about, but yeah. What did the New York Yeah, in, in Afghanistan, they're basically after, during the retreat, there had been an ISIS attack on the uh, international airport, and so the U.S. military was on very high alert for another one, and then they... Uh, the last airstrike of the war, they blew up what they said was like an ISIS attacker yes. in a car. Right. It turns out they just obliterated a family, yes. including a, a guy who had worked for the U.S. Um, and then there was just this, I mean, they basically, the truth would not have come out if the New York Times and other outlets had not really, really like dug into who was actually killed here you and why. Right. Yeah. And very recently, the military said they're not going to discipline anyone over it and basically basically chalked it up to an oopsie. 
Yep. Um, which is very unfortunate, but I think even this kind of coverage was would have been rare, like at the height of the Afghan war. I think there's, well, first of all, can, can I, sorry to interrupt, but that was a very remarkable piece of journalism from the New York Times. I wish I could, re- I mean, I, I hope people who are listening will know what we're talking about and can, can easily be, be found. We're talking about um, what happened around Kabul, right around the U.S. withdrawal in, in 2021. Um, I, I can't believe that that represents a turning of the tides at the New York Times. I think rather every few years, you know, a piece of brilliant journalism manages to come out of that cesspool. <laughs> um, that's how I see it. I don't see it as a turning of the tides. I think there's plenty of great journalists at the New York Times. And I think... I, I agree, yes. Yeah, I, I would, I'm going to say, um, in addition to that, they've been coming out with story after story, not just about Afghanistan, but just... Very, and I think something, I mean... I don't know. I, I, I don't talk to the journalists who did this. And I obviously a lot of their sources are anonymous. So I wouldn't know anyways. But, you know, I kind of get the sense that the floodgates kind of open because they've been getting a lot more stuff about just U.S. airstrikes in Syria also. And I think there is a renewal of interest. And I think you have the up and coming like, are you aware of the New York Times uh, visual um, visual investigations team? Yeah, I think that's who did that. That's who did the the investigative journalism you're talking about. Yeah. Yes, so this I is, I mean, they belong to, I think, a generation of younger journalists. Um, I think this is called like open source, open source reporting or open source intelligence. I don't like the word open source intelligence because it right. makes it sound like you're spooks. But right. uh, there, there, is a, there is a growing tradition of like, you know, so I think a big part of the, I think a big part of the problem has been the economics of journalism. Where, yes. You know, because of new technology, advertising in print and on screen is not really like a or print and TV and radio is not as lucrative as it once was. So they can't sustain as much reporting. You you go for more like opiniony stuff that is punchy that grabs more eyeballs, um, and so it's kind of let foreign reporting wither on the vine. But this new open source reporting stuff is, I mean, it's basically a, a methodology that. I think technology has been around for a while, but now it's really becoming like a established methodology for verifying stuff from your bedroom. And I think this well, is a tradition that a lot of young journalists are coming up, coming up through and is really, really beneficial for, uh, for, yeah, this kind of stuff. I am really glad to hear that because you are injecting a, a, a note of hope here um, that you actually think and I hope you're right, that there's a new trend in journalism towards greater, you know, greater exposure of, of crimes that we know, of war crimes and things like that. Um, I have to say, it never occurred to me that this was part of a growing trend. Maybe that's because I'm so pessimistic, I've become pessimistic and cynical, and I don't want to be pessimistic and cynical. So I am willing to believe you're right and hope you're right. My my interpretation was more along the lines of every once in a while, a piece of brilliant journalism escapes and manages to hit, hit the streets. Um, and then we go back to our mendacity. Um, but I really, really hope you're right, because I think this is so important. Is, you know, Maybe you're right. I think the bigger cost, uh, I think the bigger cost to be pessimistic, <laughs> if we're going back to this, 
the bigger cause to be pessimistic is if there's all this brilliant investigative journalism and nobody makes it a live issue, right? Right. Like, because there's, there's fat reporting. And I think reporting, it's kind of, it's the economics of it have made it harder. It's, it's been unfortunate, but um, yeah, uh, the economics of it have been unfortunate, but like, it still always existed. There's still always been well, good reporters. Can I, I think the problem is like the other stuff in the information ecosystem crowds it out. Like if you don't have pundits on TV, you don't have like talking heads on Twitter, you don't have like politicians like bringing these things up, making it a live debate, then it just, you know, it just becomes a niche article for right. people like you and me to read. Right, right. My hope is that the journalism we saw after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, where there was actually in the United States a sudden realization, you know, it's ridiculous that it took the murder of George Floyd there was a sudden realization among all journalists of what people already knew, which is that Black Lives Matter, um, and it, it was a lot. It was as if a curtain were were suddenly pulled away, and the truth was revealed. And my hope, and this is this is me, Mark Elliott Stein's dream, is that someday soon people will realize Palestinian lives matter, Syrian lives matter, Yemeni lives matter, Iranian lives matter. You know, um, that hasn't happened yet, but we did see it happen in the United States with Black Lives Matter. There was such an impact from George Floyd's murder, a turning of the tides um, for domestic conflict coverage in the United States. But we're still we still in the United States do not acknowledge that non-American lives matter. I think, unfortunately, it is always harder to get people to care about foreigners than them than themselves. I do think that if there is going to be a kind of reckoning about how destructive our foreign policy has been, I think that reckoning will also come with, like, I think it's going to be a, a more impactful reckoning if it comes with a realization of, like, it's also dangerous and costly for us. I think that's just unfortunately, like... You think appeal to the selfish, the selfish instinct is our best path to change? Yeah, I mean, I think this... I don't think Americans are uniquely selfish. I don't think we're uniquely selfless either. Like, I think, uh, yeah. And I think, I think, I do think that Black Lives Matter has affected, it has affected and has. So I think um, one thing is that the excesses of, the war on terror has become a little bit of a culture war issue Mm -hmm. and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict getting folded into that. I think a negative consequence of that is now you have kind of a permanent hawkish constituency. Mm. But, Terrible, but yes, I think. Uh, but I think another another effect of that is like, I think a lot of liberal Americans are more inclined to think like this that that you know Muslim lives matter, Arab lives matter, Middle Middle, Middle Eastern lives matter. I think the current debate over Israel Palestine in a lot of ways is just like a proxy for the larger issues mm. at play because this is a conflict that the U.S is so emotionally and um, and politically invested in that it kind of becomes a proxy for, which I think can be problematic sometimes because, you know, people can act like this is the only bad thing happening in the Middle East or that, uh, yeah, or, or it can get a little bit like obsessive about it. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, 
like the Palestinian lives mattering is is kind of the first place where where the conversation's really starting to shift. My fear though is that we don't really ever have the reckoning about this because we end up getting into a crisis with another power like Iran, Russia or China and suddenly those proxy wars are like quaint in comparison to the real like heap of shit we found ourselves in. Yes. And I think I think I would to just go back to like the media abdicating its responsibility. I think Soleimani's strike was a great example and I think you know with I'm sure I don't follow the China or Russia debate as closely, but I'm sure there's other stuff or like North Korea, a lot of the yeah. conversation about North Korea really doesn't drive home like the stakes, right? Like right. a war with another, we we're very used to, and I think this is part of the cynicism of just like these Imperial frontier wars where the U S government is just kind of like mindlessly killing people. Uh, but in a very low intensity way that doesn't cost Americans that much, or is throwing fuel on a proxy war that someone else is fighting like it's kind of made people forget like what it's like to fight a real no shit war. Damn right. Yeah, yeah. Against like another state that can bite. And like that is that is something I think the media, like both opinion and reporting, has to drive home like the the risks. Like I know reporting, factual reporting can't get too crazy speculative, but like it couldn't hurt to yeah. <laughs> to really yeah. call call it for what it is when you attack another country with bomb, another country that has yeah. a government and army with bombs. Right. I mean, for example, I have used the phrase United States attacked Iran and people have said, wait, we didn't attack Iran. What are you kidding me? We sure did attack Iran. We we canceled the peace deal. We we drone, you know, murdered their active officials with with drones that's called attacking um but debate now over the nuclear issue i mean like i think you know there's a worthwhile debate over whether it's the united states should you know go to war with iran to prevent it from getting a nuclear weapon whether nuclear iran is deterrable whether a nuclear iran would you know destabilize the region and cause more war fine but at least we can call it for you know we don't have to use these euphemisms and we can ask you know as factual reporters, I think we have to actually ask, like, if you're going to attack Iran, like, what legal authority are you going to do that under? How are you preparing Americans? <laughs> yeah. What are the stakes of this? Like, say the stakes, because this is not like a you know, one and done. You just plinked some militia in, you know, a country with no central government. And it's just part of the background level of horrific violence like that. That's that is bringing things to another level. I don't think you need to be opinionated to like acknowledge that yes and i think and i think if you're a factual reporter you gotta ask those questions about what happens next let's wrap this up with one last um one last question i'll throw to you and i'll you know i'll just mention to our listeners that i follow you on twitter and like i said one thing i like about your twitter is you kind of give us a flavor of of what it's like to live where you where you are um so rather than talk about you know, the horrible political problems we've, we've just spent an hour talking about. What can you tell us about life where you are that, that we, and by the way, we, you know, I'm happy to say World Beyond War is not an American organization, even though I talk like a New Yorker. We have people from all <laughs> over the world. We're a global grassroots, small donor funded organization, and people will be listening to this podcast all over the world. So I'm not asking what me, Mark, in Brooklyn needs to know, but what people all over the world might not know about the culture that you're a part of right now. 
Sure. I mean, uh, I think there's a surface level things of like, you know, Arab and, and generally Middle Eastern culture. There is more, uh, or not surface level, uh, but like the more kind of well-known things, there is a lot of uh, big hospitality culture. A lot of people mm-hmm. like, it's it's not it's not like New York. I mean, you know, I think New Yorkers are kind of hard on the exterior, soft on the interior. But like here, people really give you their time, and of course, they'll expect your time in return. Like if people call you on the phone, it's very rude not to like immediately huh. call them back or really or answer. wow. Yeah, yeah. I would um, I would not survive that. <laughs> but go on. <laughs> oh yeah, and people love. And then if you if you be like, I can't talk. I like to text. They'll send you a voice recording on WhatsApp. So that you have to put down what you're doing anyways. Just, you know, it's, it's more, it's a warm culture. It's a very warm culture. Wow. Uh, it is more conservative. It is more conservative. Uh, you mean politically conservative or socially conservative? No, no, no. Culturally conservative. Okay. Do you mean like, like marriage, family values? Yeah. Gender? Yeah. Are you talking yeah. about gender? Things like that? Gender is like probably the biggest, the thing that, that I think like Americans that 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 is the most like the biggest difference for Americans, but yeah, in general, like religion, like so, like you know, religious symbols, like people are very strongly protective of that. Um, you know, in terms of like sex, it is like a sexually conservative culture. There's not like a lot of like it's not dating the same way America works. There is like you know a strong expectation of marriage and premarital sex is very frowned upon. I think as a negative, people tend to kind of have a. a like kind of quote benevolent sexism, like they they mm. have a, kind of jealously guard their like female relatives. Um, there is there is a very cosmopolitan segment of society. I don't think it's a majority, and I think it is still more conservative than Americans might expect. Alcohol is there are bars. Um, alcohol is very highly taxed, but there are bars. But uh, it's also not like there's not clubbing. Gotcha. You, there are places you can dance, but it's not like stay up until three in the morning, loud electronic music. There's concerts sometimes, and then there's like bars that are just like, you know, like you hang out with your friends, you get some food and drinks, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, let me think about some other things that are uh, – let me let me ponder this a bit. Sure. Uh, I do – the urbanism of Amman – you ever play the city building games like SimCity? Yes, I, I remember SimCity. Yes. Amman is like something I'd build in SimCity when I was like 10 and didn't really mm. understand how stuff works. It's a lot of like weird. I mean, this is a consequence. It's on hills. Wow. Um, it's got a lot of like weird, you know, you can be like 100 feet from somewhere in like a 10 minute walk because you got to loop around mm-hmm. weird ways. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of it is suburban sprawl, which is just, I lived in a, I moved to somewhere a little bit closer to the city center and I love my neighborhood and it's very nice. A lot of it's just boring, like, you know, the worst of American suburbia, but without the green space. Wow. These are, these are really vivid descriptions. So thank you. You're, you're helping me picture. What <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. And uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to think there, there are some very charming things about life in Amman and like. I mean, some of this is coming from a place of privilege because, like, I'm I have a fellowship that pays me in U.S. dollars. Um, U.S. dollars go far here. You know, people here who are being paid in Jordanian dinar are stuff is very expensive for them. For me, it's very cheap. Yeah. Uh, but it is a very you can have a very charming life in Amman, and um, 
Yeah, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. Well, <laughs> I have I have two quick questions to ask, quick answer questions. Um, one is, you know, at World Beyond War, we sometimes try to avoid the phrase Middle East because, um, you know, the question has been asked, east of what? Where are we that we that this is east? That's not a global word. Is there a better phrase, perhaps an Arabic phrase, that I could use in the title of this podcast? Because I don't want to say, you know, talking to a guy about the Middle East. Um, what what phrase would you use? So in Arabic, you could say a Sharq al-Awsat, which is also the Middle East. It's an English import. Um, uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> but a lot of people have started moving. I think some people have started moving to like, West Asia or Southwest Asia. Well, yet Southwest again, Asia. relative to what? Why do we have to be? Yeah. That's the problem. I, mean, I think with any geographic area, like it's relative to foreigners, right? Because if you are, if you didn't know anything about the outside world and you are just living here and you're living in a place that's mostly Arabs and then you've got some Armenians and you've got like, you know, then like, what is the Middle East? Well, the Middle East, I'm, that's ahead. the thing. I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I sometimes have wondered about the phrase the Holy Lands. Now obviously that's sort of that's sort of culturally relative, you know, that means that you acknowledge the religions that call these lands holy, but let's realize you are in a special land. Um what do you think of the Holy Lands and is there a a phrase, you know, I'm I'm really am looking for a better phrase because I because I don't want to use compass points. People do use the Holy Land here. There's like a lot of stuff called like businesses and schools and stuff with the name Holy Land. Interesting. I mean, that's more specific though. That's like basically both sides of Jordan Valley. Uh, when I say Jordan Valley, like the border between Israel, Palestine and Jordan, like when you say the West Bank, there is a river running. Right. And the West Bank is the West Bank of that. Right. Um, and Jordan is 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 uh, the East Bank of the river. But yeah, when people, when people talk about the Holy Land, that's really just like the Mediterranean coast and the, and the Jordan Valley. Um, but you could say the Holy Land. I, I think it's, I like it. I think it's a very charming and, and yeah. very meaningful. But you're right. That would exclude Iraq and, and Egypt. I mean. But look, man, I can't really, I mean, I can barely speak for Jordanians, right? I'm speaking as a foreigner living gotcha, here, but gotcha. I can't speak for Iraqis or Iranians or, or Gulfies or Egyptians, except you know, through the ones I meet. So, well, you know, I love it that I can ask you this question, even if we haven't found the one perfect answer. The last question, I think this will be an easy one. Every episode I like to um, enhance with a bit of music from a song that is popular or relevant to the place we're talking about. Can you think of a, a song that's, you know, sort of captures the vibe of of the world you're in right now that I could choose for this episode. And you could take so a moment a to really think. popular song. I hear it on the radio and like blasting from cars all the time by a band called Synaptic, but I don't really think it captures the vibe. It's just like some douchebaggy pop music. That's exactly <laughs> what I, that, that could be perfect, but Synaptic. Okay. But do you have others as well? Uh, yeah. Let me think on that. Oh, actually this is one song I really love called, uh, it's called uh, Ya Salam by Autostrad, and it's kind of like a it's kind of like a cheery like uh, you know I don't have any money but I want to I'm like happy about life and it's it's I think it's a nice like wow. kind of Jordanian like, joie de vivre kind of song. Oh, I love it. That's exactly what I wanted, Matthew. That's what I want. You know, 
if if I try to answer that question for myself, I will not find um, Autostrad. And I just Googled them as you as you said this, and I found them. And the name of the song? Uh, ya Salam. Ya Salam. Great. Okay, with that, I think that we're going to go out with that song then. I can usually use about a minute on a podcast without copyright problems. Um, and I want to thank you. This has been a, a very riveting conversation. Um, you've said some surprising things, and I think our listeners will will benefit from your perspective, and I hope they'll follow you on Twitter. Anything else, any other place people should um, follow you if they're interested? Yeah, uh you know, I really ought to have my Twitter is protected right now. I'm like not trying to. I'm just, you know, I'm realize just, that I did not realize that, Matthew. Okay, no, it's locked. Uh, it's locked at the moment. It'll be it'll be unlocked soon. But at the moment, you know, I'm not writing actively, so I don't think there's so much of a value in having a public presence. But I will, you know, people can send me a follow request. I'll be back definitely. Okay. And uh, yeah, I think uh, no. Thank you for having me. I mean, look, I'm just some dude. <laughs> I'm just. We've lived in a lot of interesting places, but, uh, um, and I, I just, I guess I want to add with disclaimer, like I don't speak for anyone here. I just speak for my own two eyes and ears and like, you know, I hope, I hope, uh, I'm, I'm flattered that, that, uh, that you find my ideas interesting enough to uh, have me on. Well, it's because it comes from the heart and I'm just some dude too. That's all we all are. Um, so thanks again, Matthew. It's been great. Thank you, man. Really nice to meet you. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.